there was a television show on the air. I'm not sure if it is anymore. Called Undercover Boss. Has anyone ever heard of Undercover Boss? Is this still on the air, Sean? No? I, who knows? Is it? Okay. Well, if you've seen it, the basic premise of the show is this. Someone who's a boss of some kind wants to know if their company is doing well when they're not around. So they go undercover. And they put on a disguise, you know, a baggy hoodie and a mustache and a wig and things. And they pretend to be a new recruit. And the show has basically two feel-good moments in it. One of the feel-good moments is, you know, the hardworking, unappreciated single mom is finally shown as being hardworking and unappreciated. And she finally is revealed as being this incredibly thoughtful, hard worker that just isn't given enough credit. But then the other feel-good moment is when the lazy, backbiting, culture-destroying person is finally revealed. And the audience thinks, yeah, if only my boss knew what Jerry was like when he wasn't around, then maybe I wouldn't have to pick up all of his slack, right? So then there's this moment at the end of the show when, you know, the boss is unveiled, right? And, you know, they say, it was me the whole time. And, you know, they gasp and all that. And what ends up happening, right? This wonderful single mom is showered with blessing, right? The just are blessed. Those who are worthy of blessing are given abundance. You know, he buys her a new car, pays off her college debt, creates a foundation for her children, right? You've seen all this, right? It makes people feel good. But then with the other figure, with the Jerry person, right? What ends up happening? He starts making excuses. I was just having a bad day. It, it, you know, and all the other people are like, no, that's not right, you know? And he's fired, right? And it makes you feel good because you think, ah, finally justice is done. But what's the main theme of the show? Blessing will happen to the just and judgment will fall upon the unjust. And all of that happens with a great unveiling. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we're in a sermon series through Lent. Lent is a season that is preparatory for, this, for Easter Sunday, this Sunday where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of Lent is this great anticipation for this moment of resurrection. And the reason why we have this season called Lent is because that's frankly the Christian life, is living a life of of, of pain at times, of suffering at times, of lack at times, all in preparation for what? The great Easter of Christ once for all, an eternal ushering in of his eternal resurrected kingdom. It's a season of anticipation. So we've looked at the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis, as a book of anticipation and foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the entire Old Testament points to and prepares us for the coming of our Savior. And so we looked at Genesis 3.15, the crushing of the head of the serpent as a prefigurement of Christ crushing the head of Satan. We looked at Melchizedek as a representation of a kingly priest in Christ's far greater priesthood and kingship. We then looked, I think last week, Kyle did Isaac and Abraham. 
this gut-wrenching story that, in which we ask, Lord, how could you ever ask Abraham to give up the son of promise only to have it revealed that's exactly what he did for us? And this week, I want to look at one of the most robust and beautiful passages that prefigures Christ, the life of Joseph. If you don't know anything about Joseph, Joseph was the prized son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac. Kyle preached on last week. He was given a prophecy that his brothers didn't like so much, so they thought about killing him and then chose otherwise and functionally killed him by selling him into slavery in Egypt. And then while he's in Egypt, he's resurrected, raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, and this brother that they killed is the only person that can save them when a famine hits. In Genesis 45 is one of the most dramatic passages in all of Scripture. We know what's going to happen, so we have kind of miss very often the, the drama of it. But if you're a first-time reader, and you know that Joseph is now this leader in Egypt, his brothers are coming to him, begging for food, they have no idea who he is, and he's unveiled. And you wonder, ah, is this like undercover boss? Is he going to smash them? <laughs> because they deserve to be smashed. They do. All he did was tell them a dream he had. It was no fault of his own that his father favored him. That wasn't his fault. And yet they functionally killed him, sold him into slavery, did him as wrong as you could do him. And so you think, is he going to exact revenge? And is it even revenge or is it justice? But what does he do? He extends forgiveness and he gives life. He extends forgiveness to his brother's claiming what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He welcomes them into the land of Egypt and provides for them food for them and for their children. What we see here is a brother that is functionally murdered by his brothers only to be resurrected and ascend to the very right hand of the most prominent person on earth, Pharaoh, and in that place offer forgiveness and life to his brothers. Does that story sound familiar at all? Joseph is one of the most clear and beautiful foreshadowings of our Lord Jesus Christ in the entire scripture. And so today, while I could look at just dozens of things about Joseph that point to Jesus, we're Anglicans, so we don't preach 45 minutes, so I'm going to only look at three things really quick, okay? First, the guilt of his brothers is the guilt we all share. The brothers represent all of God's people. They're not just 11 random brothers that did something wrong to their brother. They represent you and they represent me. They represent the guilt of God's people. Second, I want to look at Joseph's choice to forgive and to extend life. That it's only through forgiveness that life can be given. And how that points to the far greater forgiveness and life offered in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I want to say something before I get going too much. Um, I think every preacher gives themselves to a very specific way of preaching that they develop over time. 
Some of you were here at the beginning of this church plant, and my preaching was probably a lot different then. I had a ton more hair, a lot more energy, a lot less life experience, right? Um, but it might have been different then. But, but I think there's, some, there's two things that have kind of stayed stable, I think, for the past eight years. And we're coming up on almost eight years, guys. It's kind of incredible. Um, is for me, preaching is fundamentally pastoral care. Yes, I want to talk to you about theology I want to talk to you about things that I find interesting and I know you find interesting, but it doesn't, if it doesn't actually open up the human heart and allow the Holy Spirit to speak, then it's not a sermon, right? Preaching is fundamentally pastoral care. And so I, 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 it's my one chance to talk to the, all of you all at once. That's why I give it so much work and time. But it's also, my goal has also been to teach you how to read the Bible to model for you week in and week out appropriate ways of coming under God's Scripture. We often think we analyze the Scripture. No, the Scripture analyzes us. We don't interpret it. It interprets us. And there are appropriate ways of approaching God's Word that actually form us. And so some of you have seen this through theological readings of Scripture or typological, which are the foreshadowing images. So my goal has always been to teach you how to read the Bible on your own. And so today's sermon is going to be much more of the latter, of seeing this passage, this beautiful scripture of Joseph, and how it unveils and, and prepares us for all of these images that are far greater and more beautiful in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today will be a bit more of in the narrative and in the text and all of that stuff than normal. So I just wanted to prepare you for that. Now, if you would, turn with me to Genesis 37, beginning in verse 18, where we're going to look at the betrayal of the brothers. Now, before I get to that, I want to lay out a little bit of groundwork as to how this is not about 12 random brothers, but this is actually a story about you and about me. You might remember that the covenant of grace, which is a covenant we still live in, this unilateral act of God to say, you will be my people, I will be your God, was given to Abraham. And that promise was also that he would have a multitude that would follow him. And he was given two sons, one outside of the promise, Ishmael, and one within the promise, Isaac. Kyle preached about Isaac last week. Now, Isaac, you might remember, had two sons as well, or as, yeah, as well. He had Esau, who was actually the rightful heir, and Jacob, who was God's choice to be the heir. And Jacob tricks his father into getting the inheritance himself. And then Jacob has 12 sons from a variety of women. Um, probably not good, but pri primarily um, uh, Leah, whose story is incredibly tragic and no fault of her own, uh, and also Rachel, J J um, Jacob's true love, who had, he had two sons with, Joseph and Benjamin. Now, if you know, at one point in Jacob's life, he's known as the trickster, the heel grabber, who tricked his brother Esau out of the inheritance. And at one point, he wrestles with God. And do you remember what happens after he wrestles with God? It happened to his grandfather. He gets a new name. And his new name is Israel. Now, this man named Israel has 12 sons, like the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where the 12 tribes come from, these 12 boys. 
Now, why is that significant? Because the 12 tribes of Israel are then fulfilled in the 12 disciples of Christ. And what do they reveal? They reveal all of God's people. They reveal the inheritors of God's grace. They reveal the people that God has said, I have chosen to be your God and you will be my people. These are the people that God has elected to love. And at the very beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel, at the very beginning of when God's people are established, what do they do? They receive a prophecy from God's anointed, Joseph. We often think, you know, Joseph must have been a real jerk. We, we don't totally know that. We just know he was given a true prophecy that he shared. Maybe it was not with very much tact, but he said, hey, guys, I'm going to be a bigger stalk. You're all going to bow down to me. And then he even told his mom and dad, hey, you guys are all a bunch of stars, and you're the sun and the moon, mom and dad, and you're all going to bow down to me. And what did the brothers do to that? How did they respond to God's anointed? At the very beginning of the establishment of God's people, when a word of prophecy comes that you will bow down, what is their response? It's to rebel. They would rather kill their brother than bow their knees to him. They would rather see him a slave than see him as their king. Does that story sound a bit familiar? Now, let's go to the text together. These aren't just 11, well, 12 brothers. This is a story of you and me. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Remember his dreams, you're gonna bow down to me. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, then that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. All right, so there is one that is faithful. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if, if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Let that sink in for just a moment. There's debate amongst the brothers, but what do they eventually do? What, what, is, what is the final outcome? God's anointed, God's prophet is handed over to slavery and in their minds to death. He is sent into a far country. He is taken away from them. And I think what's meant to happen in this text is we're meant to be scandalized by this. You're meant to ask, who on earth would ever do that? 
I mean, think about it for a minute. They throw him in the pit, and then they sit down and have a meal. Have you ever had done something that you're incredibly guilty over? You don't want to eat. That's how resigned to their bitterness and sin they were, that they could sit down and eat a meal after when their brother is probably wailing in a pit. We're meant to be scandalized by this moment and then to look at ourselves and see that it is meant to be a prefigurement and a representation of our betrayal and murder of Christ Jesus. Acts 2, 22 through 24 says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, delivered up, According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Unless you think, well, that's spoken to the Israelites, not to me. Read Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or read 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or read Isaiah 53.5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What we see in the grand arch of Scripture is from the very beginning, God's people have been violently rejecting God's anointed. Whether that is with Joseph being handed over, we see it as well with Adam and Eve refusing to bend their knees to God, wanting to be like God themselves. And we see it in our Lord Jesus Christ when his disciples leave him, when the crowd scream, crucify him, when we recognize that he died for the sake of our fallenness and our sins. What we recognize is that the very heart of God's people is, yes, that he calls them to holiness. Yes, that he calls them to a different life. Yes, he calls them to cling to his grace. And yet, God's people are forged and begin in iniquity. It is not because they are particularly good people that God has chosen to love them. It is not that they are particularly more moral or more righteous in their own work. Rather, he goes particularly to the unjust, particularly to those that know that they have betrayed their Savior and their Lord. Sunday morning, when we hear the church bells ringing, although we don't hear those anymore, if only we did, it would be a summon for sinners to come. It's a summon for those that know that they are not righteous in their own works. It's a summon to those who know that in their own capacity and in their own will, they cannot please God, but they killed God's very son. I don't know where any of you are at today. Well, I do know where some of you are at. But if you've ever walked into church with your head hanging low, and saying, if only they knew who I actually was, they'd all reject me. 
If that's you, this is the place for you. And this has always been the place for you. From the beginning of God's people, they were not forged in their own sense of righteousness, but they were gathered together as those who are precisely unrighteous. That does not mean that we make allowance for sin or bless sin, as often happens in our world today. But it is the place where sinners are called to come, repent, and be restored to who God made them to actually be. And so this is the place where we recognize that our sins don't define us because a greater forgiveness is offered to us. And that greater forgiveness led Joseph's brothers to life, and we're given a far greater forgiveness that leads us to life in Christ Jesus. So let's look at that now. First, I hope I've made the case this is our story, not their story. It's a story of those that reject God's anointed just as we rejected our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also a story about how God's grace conquers even our sin. So what happens to Joseph? He's sent off into this far land. He goes to this guy Potiphar's house, and he's incredibly righteous there. He prospers there. But Potiphar's wife tries to lure him into sin with her, but he runs from sin. Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness where he's tempted and yet does not fall. He then is sent into a prison where he interprets dreams. I can't go into all of that, but one of the dreams he interprets is, hey, a famine's coming. We have to prepare for the famine. Here's how you can prepare for the famine. Pharaoh elevates him to be his right hand. The most powerful person on earth takes someone out of a prison and says, now you're gonna rule with me. Does that sound familiar? Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There is one who went through a far greater death, who went to a greater prison, the grave itself, only to be raised, resurrected, and rule. But then we see something really interesting happen. This famine that Joseph uh, interpreted, well, God told Joseph was going to happen, happens, and his brothers are facing sure death. His father, Jacob, all of his siblings, and all of their children, the people of God, are facing extinction. And so what do they do? They travel to Egypt to try to buy grain. They're the last people that have it. And they come to their brother. They don't know it's their brother. And we're left with this lingering question, is the justice of Joseph going to win, or will mercy win? Because at the end of the day, these brothers deserve what they would get if he said, "Ha! it is I. And they're shocked and fearful for good reason. But what do we see in our text? We see that a greater forgiveness conquers even the just punishment that could have come to the brothers. And this so clearly prefigures the words of Jesus when he is upon the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Turn with me to Genesis 45. Let's look at this passage together. I can't think of a more dramatic passage in all of the Old Testament. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone get out from, uh, get out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. 
And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come to me, near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Here we see the power of God's forgiving life. For some reason, there's this big debate in theological circles about how reformed people like me talk too much about justification. Justification is just a legal term, they say. I'm like, do you know how to read? That's what I want to yell. Um, is, yes, it is a legal term. It's a legal term that when God proclaims you justified, it is so. And when you are proclaimed justified, you are brought into life. That is the only way to live. That is the only way to live with God is to be just, is to be pronounced forgiven. And what we see here is that Joseph, when he invites them into life and says, here is all of this food for you, bring everybody, I'm going to have a home for you. It first has to start with the announcement that he isn't holding a grudge, that he isn't going to crush them, that he doesn't hold their iniquities against them, which he could if he chose to. But rather, his forgiveness conquers their, greater, their great iniquities. The greater act of forgiveness conquers their iniquities and ushers them into life. And this is exactly, exactly, well, it, not even exact. No, it's not. What Christ does is far greater because we honored the, dishonored the infinite God and murdered his infinitely beautiful son. And to these, he still announces forgiven. But how does he announce forgiven? How does he announce that your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west? It is in the very act of our rebellion of sending his son to the cross. Because our sending of the son to the cross is the very place where our sins are taken upon him. 
And this is why we see in Genesis 50, 20, and 21, this beautiful image. Read it with me. It's one of the most powerful passages in all scripture. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What do we see here? When Christ was sent to the cross, this great act of rebellion in sin, what happened? In that moment, God established a greater good. That in that moment, precisely, he created a way that our sins could be swallowed up. In this moment of our sins, that Jesus would take our sins upon himself, nail them to a cross, and leave them there. What we meant for evil, God meant for good. The very sin that led to our Savior being murdered upon the cross is the very pathway that our God gave us to forgiveness and new life. His grace overcomes even our sins. And then what do we see Joseph doing? What do we see him doing to his people? He comforts them. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He forgives them. He provides a way of life for them. And the very people that wrong him are the ones that he comforts. I shared this with you guys a few months ago. Um, but in the, the person that wronged me the most in life, I could announce forgiveness, but I can't comfort. You know, the young guy that accidentally killed my cousin, it wasn't an accident. I can forgive. I, I can say, hey, you know, I was young once too and stupid, but I don't want him calling me on the phone and saying, hey, I can't sleep tonight. I want to say, well, neither can I because of you. And hang up. But that's what our God does for us. The very people who wronged him, he says, come to me for comfort. Come to me as the one place where you can receive wholeness. And I will give you my spirit. I will give you the very presence of my son, the son that you nailed to a tree. And he will be the one to weep with you in the wee hours of the night. And we see that foreshadowed in Joseph but given far more in the presence of our Lord. This is our story, family, that we are the ones who sold our brother into slavery. We're the ones that sold him to death. And this is the very one who gives us forgiveness, who gives us life, who gives us comfort. This is why this story defines our lives. This is why this story changes everything about who we are, that we are those who have been forgiven, we are those who have been provided life, and we are those who are comforted. Let us turn to our far, the one who is far greater than Joseph, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who provides life for us. You are the one that provides us forgiveness. 
You are the one that provides us comfort. Lord, would we turn to you and to you alone? Lord, we are so tempted, like the brothers of Joseph, to worry that you've forgotten about your forgiveness. That one day you might choose to change your mind. And Lord, would we remember that when you have chosen to be for us, you are for us indeed. That when you announce forgiveness, we are truly forgiven. And that when you have given us new life, we are truly raised. Lord, would we turn to you as our only hope in life and death. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.